we will put it in your hand. But if you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. You know, I was listening to, uh, I, back in the late 1800s, there was a revival. You ever heard of Jeremiah Lampier? A uh, great revival that took place in the, in the late 1800s. And um, just, uh, just after the revival started, it started sweeping across the country. You know, in the, the city of Chicago, which is where D.L. Moody came out of, and so you've got um, revival was sweeping through there. And, and I was talking this uh, to our men Friday at the uh, Friday Men's Bible Study. Uh, the revival was so powerful that not only did the churches become packed and you could hardly even get in the church, there was actually lines outside to get in the church. Get this, you had to get on a waiting list to serve in the children's ministry. I'm, this isn't a joke. This was real. You had to get on a wait. When revival hits, you got to get on a waiting list to serve in children's ministry. Now, I was listening to Pastor Joe Foch, and he was saying, he goes, we dream of that up at Calvary, Philadelphia. But um, So we do need to continue to pray for revival because a lot of the things that we see as problems, God fixes when people get quickened with the Spirit. The, most of the problems that are in the church is the church is asleep. And so we're going to look at a passage today. We're going to see a few men that were not asleep. We refer to them as wise men. And the wisest thing you can do is respond to God's leading in your life. Amen? Turn with me now, uh, Matthew chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 1. I'll be reading the first 12 verses. You know this text. Uh, we, each week we've been reading a part of the text that people know, but we have been kind of chunking it up so we don't have to kind of try and cover it all in one shot. But let's uh, start with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, so again, Jesus is already born. This is established. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, this is Herod the Great, the first of the Herods, uh, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child. And when you have found it, bring, him, uh, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, by the way, notice it said young child, okay? Not a baby now. When, the star, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts, of, gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country and went another way. Lord, we just ask again now, Lord, that you and you alone would speak to us, your people. If anyone here is not your child yet, I pray that they wouldn't leave here today 
without settling the matter and surrendering their heart and life to you. For you desire all to be saved, and this is why you came, and this is why we celebrate your birth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you're with us the last couple of weeks, we started out uh, with the first two people who were revealed the coming of the Lord, and that was who? Joseph and Mary. They found out before anybody else. Actually, Mary found out first, right? She, she, she got the uh, shocking news that, uh, oh, by the way, you're going to be pregnant with a child, and she's like, uh, you know, this whole wedding thing hasn't even really been consummated yet. And, get, and the Holy Spirit, through the angel, says, I know but this is how I'm going to accomplish. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And we understand that a virgin birth is not hard for God that speaks the universe into existence, correct? Not a big deal for God. He can make, he can make anything. He made us out of, out of dirt, the Bible tells us, right? We're, we're made of the dust of the ground. He, the only reason there's life is God breathes life into things, right? The, the, it said the breath of God was breathed into Adam and Eve. So the virgin birth, although some people may question it, it's not to be questioned when you're talking about the God of all the universe that speaks things into existence. So they were the first to find out. We, we remember that Joseph was quite troubled by this as well. What does this mean to him? Uh, what is he supposed to do? Uh, what is their reputation in the community? What, what in the world are they supposed to do as far as this could actually be hazardous to their health and, and those times? And all of the conflict in his mind, the angel comes to him as well and, and clarifies and says, this is indeed from the Lord. Uh, take her as your wife. Everything's going to be... But, but again, they even remember as far as the marriage, uh, the, the, the Hebrew uh, marriage was a three-phase thing. You had the betrothal phase, you had the ceremony phase, and then you had the consummation of the marriage, the third part. And uh, you know, that part wouldn't come until later. And Joseph uh, resisted any desire to take things any further and waited for God to complete that work. And then how in the world were they going to get to Bethlehem? We looked at that, the fact that, uh, well, they didn't live in Bethlehem, but uh, even this text here tells us um, that the Messiah would have to come from Bethlehem. And of course, we looked at the fact that last week, uh, at that same time, uh, the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, was in power. And he gave a decree how coincidentally he gives a decree at that time that everyone had to return to the city of their birth. And so they had to go to Bethlehem, and a 70-mile journey, uh, not something you typically do in a late-term pregnancy and, and uh, all of it w- that would come with that. But they make that journey because this was God's plan, and they get there. And then, of course, when they get to Bethlehem, there's no room for them. Where in the world is the Son of God to be born. And so then they find that the only option uh, is a stable, and many scholars believe it was actually the inside of a cave. And so that is where Jesus is born, these humble beginnings. Uh, But of all the people that find out second, after Joseph and Mary, wasn't kings, wasn't rulers, shepherds. Uh, But we understand that God has a heart for shepherds, right? Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Jacob, who would later be named Israel, was a shepherd. And Jesus would be what? The good shepherd. He would be the shepherd that would, that would uh, shepherd his people. It says that uh, in our text this morning, right here uh, in chapter 6, who will shepherd my people Israel. So God has a heart for shepherds. So these poor shepherds, they were the ones that kind of reflected the humble servants that God would call us to be. But these men that we're going to look at this morning... Well, they're not shepherds. 
if shepherds were lightly educated, but really, I mean, shepherds, they know sheep, don't they? They're good at that, but they may not be good at everything else. But they're really good with sheep. You, You and I might actually lead all the sheep to death. They know how to do that. But these other men that we're going to look at today, they, they would be on the other end of the spectrum. These were highly educated men, learned men, men that actually had some bit of esteem, more than a bit. Uh, you'll see which, as we go through this, quite a bit of esteem uh, in the eyes of men. But unlike a lot of people who have esteem, they came to realize that everything that they had was nothing compared to finding Jesus. And if you're taking notes this morning, uh, I've titled our time of the word this morning, finding the king. And the first thing we want to look at starts with these uh, wise men. Now, you always see in the pictures and everything, uh, them referred to as three men, and uh, you'll always see the the photos, even the one that we have on the screen here has three three camels. And that's because there were three gifts given, right? Uh, But that doesn't mean there was only three uh, in the company of wise men that came. There could have been many more than that. Uh, but because there was three gifts, it's, it's also often shown uh, just three men. Now, if you're taking notes, the first thing I want to look at is uh, these wise men, what I've entitled expectant hearts. It says, now after Jesus was born, uh, the days, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from these came to Jerusalem. And we know that um, for them to follow the star, they were expecting God to actually bring them, go back one, they were actually expecting God to bring them to the place where this king was, be, was to be born. They don't know where this is going to be, but they expected that if God had revealed this to them, that he would indeed show them this newborn king. And let me tell you, if God has revealed to you Jesus Christ through salvation, he is going to take you to the very feet of Jesus in your life. You can expect that he will deliver more than just your salvation, which is, which is the most important thing you could ever acquire. But beyond that, he's going to deliver, if we have the right hearts, he's going to deliver the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. He's going to deliver peace in our life, joy in our life. And we want to look at these things this morning. Now, we don't know exactly who the Magi were, because there was, there was Magi around the ancient world, not just in the, in the Near East and the Far East, but in other places. But it does say that they came from the East. So we, we have a pretty good, good idea um, where they were from as far as the general geographic area. And this is pretty well agreed upon. Uh, in the ancient Greek, it's the word Magi. Uh, in the general consensus, based on historical evidence, is that the Magi... Uh, were from the area of what would be northern Iran today or, or northern Iraq. Actually, all that area where ISIS is in the news, that's exactly where they would have been from, uh, this particular uh, group of Magi. Uh, and in ancient time, that was called Persia. Matter of fact, some of you uh, are old enough to remember when Iran was called Persia in your lifetime. And it was called Persia uh, up until, um, what, it was in the 70s, I want to say, uh, when you had the, um, the Shahs were... were uh, ousted, and the Ayatollahs came in. But in ancient, uh, in ancient Babylon and Persia, the Magi, they were descendants of the Medes. Remember, it was called the Medes and the Persians. They had come together in an alliance. The Medes and the Persians had come together, and they actually kind of uh, came together in the Persian Empire. But the Medes were also there even in the Babylonian times as well. 
the Magi were descendants of the Medes who were there as part of Babylon and part of the Persian empires. Uh, they were students of science. They were students of agriculture. They were students of mathematics and history. Again, they were really well learned. They were like the, uh, the really um, brilliant philosophers and thinkers and all of those in Athens uh, that you would see. They were like that, just men that had high intelligence but studied and learned a lot of things. In addition to their intellectual reputation, the Magi, they formed the priestly caste or the priestly um, class within uh, both Babylon and Persia. They were the priestly group within the Babylonian Empire and within the Persian Empire. They were highly politically connected, much like the religious leaders were in Jerusalem, right? Just like the Pharisees were, remember how they were connected to Pilate and they had power and Caiaphas had access to the, uh, in the same way, they had access to power. Matter of fact, that they were right, they were seated at the table of power. So they were the um, priestly class, but they were also the intellectual class. Today, we kind of have, in America... Priestly class is over here, intellectual class is over here. <laughs> but at this time, they were actually part of the same group. I'd like to actually be somewhat smart and teach the Bible, just so you know. Uh, I think it's okay to be both, but anyway. Uh, they were instrumental, by the way, in approving the ascension of kings and judges. So they were involved in giving their thumbs up or thumbs down into the approval of kings and judges in both the Babylonian times and the Persian times. They were... Um, as part of their spiritual roles and expertise, they studied the stars, which is called astronomy. They also studied the supposed meaning of the stars, which is called astrology. They're two different things. They actually did both. They were, they were really brilliant when it came to astronomy, which is, which is what NASA does, right? But they also were into astrology. What do the stars mean? Did they tell the future? All of that stuff, which is more of an occultic thing. So this, they, they were uh, spiritual, but not of the Holy Spirit. They also had a sacrificial system. Interestingly enough, their sacrificial system was somewhat similar to the sacrificial system that God had given to Moses. And there's even some debate on how they arrived at that. They had a sacrificial system. It wasn't identical, but there are some similarities uh, but with that, they also practiced sorcery, which, of course, God hated. And they were noted for being able to interpret and discern dreams. This was, this was one of the things that they were known uh, around the world for. Now, isn't it interesting, as we read the text there, we know that they followed the stars, and at the very end, in verse 12, God speaks to them in a dream. Isn't it interesting, these men who studied the stars and interpreted dreams are spoken to God, by the stars, and God speaks to them in a dream. Isn't that interesting? Did you know that God is coming to people in the Middle East right now in dreams? That many Muslim people, uh, who actually in the, in, the, in the Middle Eastern world, dreams have a high, high regard. There's a lot of discussion about what dreams mean in the Middle East, and yet God is coming to many people in the Muslim world through dreams. Jesus is revealing himself. It is true If someone is actually genuinely searching for truth, God will not run from them. He'll come and meet them. You believe that? I mean, if someone's really looking for truth, if someone says, if I found the true and living God, I would follow him, God says, and I'll reveal myself to you. 
But if you're playing games with God, that's a different story. And I believe these men were really searching for truth. What do you think? I believe that God knew their hearts. They were seeking for the truth, seeking the truth. But for the Magi, uh, due to their prestige and their position within society, so they had a prestigious place in society. They had a position within society. They were able to acquire wealth and possessions. Now, this is the way it works everywhere in the world. Wherever you have a high place in society, you're going to get rich. doesn't matter if it's Asia. doesn't matter if it's Africa. doesn't matter if it's South America. Whoever's at the top of the kind of social order acquires money. It's the way it works. It's always worked in the world. Uh, and that's not going to change until Jesus comes back, by the way. So they acquired wealth and possessions based on their place in society. Now, the ancient world was more connected than we think today. A lot of times people think, well, because they didn't have smartphones, they didn't have the Internet. Uh, Rome had no idea what was going on over in Iran. Not true. The ancient world was more connected than we think. Uh, remember the term, all roads lead to Rome? Rome had built quite a network. Uh, they had an information superhighway that was different than ours. But again, if you get a chance, we want to go to Israel in 2018, and you get a chance to see these ancient places, and you realize that they traded all over the world. And you're like, how in the world did they get those olives over here? And how, you know, all these things that they did, the ancient world was more connected than we seem to think. As a matter of fact, isn't it interesting today that we, we still model buildings after Roman columns? We still model government after some of the things. Uh, so they weren't dumb as a box of rocks back then. Uh, there, was a lot, there was a lot of intellect and a lot of uh, understanding, and the world was connected. Trade was from the British Isles uh, all the way to India. Even in the time of the Roman Empire, these things were taking place. All the way down into Central Africa, uh, all the way up through Northern Africa. Uh, the sharing and adopting of gods was common across uh, the Roman Empire and beyond. Fashions cultural practices were common. And also what was common was prevailing thoughts. Just like there's right now, uh, at times in in the world, we'll have a prevailing thought where everyone is under the kind of dark pall of terrorism, for example. And everyone has a sense of impending what's next kind of thing. Well, the, the ancient world had some of the same thing. There was kind of an attitude that would pervade about a certain thing that would actually sweep across nations and it would come through travelers and traders and political means and everything else. So there was attitudes and there was expect, expectations uh, that traveled across areas of Europe, Africa, and the Middle East and parts of Asia, all throughout the Roman Empire and well beyond. Now understand that the Magi, they were somewhat uniquely at a convergence of what we'd consider resident knowledge at that time, because they had the highest level of resident knowledge, as far as intellect goes, and continuous searching. They weren't content with just what they knew. They were always searching for more. You ever meet people that they already know a lot and they're always trying to learn more? This was the Magi. By the way, I think it's a good thing for us all to want. The reason you're here this morning is I don't care if you've read the Bible, you think you can learn something more. And not only learn something more, the big thing is apply something more. That's the big difference. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to, to actually apply it and do it. But they were continuously searching. They had this resident knowledge, but they were always searching, and they were searching the stars for meaning. What do all these things mean? By the way, when you have everything you could ever want, you're still going to search for meaning. This is why Hollywood people die, wealthy people die, depressed, sad, 
empty because even if you had it all, you're still going to be searching the stars for meaning. But because of their study, and even their study of other religions, they would have had familiar with, familiarity with the Tanakh. What is the Tanakh? The Tanakh's the Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi. That's the Tanakh. They would have had familiar not only with the Tanakh, but other religions around the world. They would trade information. They would study different things. Now, Daniel, you guys remember Daniel? Daniel in the Bible. So he, uh, he ended up, he was uh, carted off to Babylon as a slave. And the, and the Babylonians came against Jerusalem three times. But Daniel was taken to Babylon. He became uh, a slave while he was there. But then he rose out of that. God actually put him in a great position of authority eventually. And one of the main reasons uh, for Daniel's uh, success was that... Um, Daniel, he ended up being even made chief prefect over all the guests who? Magi. Did you know that? Daniel became the overseer of the religious and intellectual class of Magi when he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream that they couldn't interpret. Remember, that was their big forte, one of their big forte. And he interpreted the dream, and they couldn't interpret the dream. And when he interpreted the dream, he saved their life because they were about to all be killed. Nebuchadnezzar was so mad, he was going to wipe out the Magi. And even though they were the, by the way, political leaders are willing to wipe out their allies fast. Be be aware of those things. Um, But he was willing to wipe them out because they couldn't interpret his dream. And Daniel interpreted the dream. But he not only interpreted the dream, he said, don't kill the Magi. It's not their fault, basically. They don't know the true and living God. And they ended up revering Daniel, the Magi, even, even some of the Magi that didn't give their lives to God, still put Daniel on a high place. Even later on, the Magi would still have a great feeling towards Daniel. And so he was made uh, head of them. So they revered him for many generations after that. Now there's a distinct possibility that some of the members of the Magi were already true followers of God while they were searching the stars. But not, and again, they did, also did astronomy. It wasn't all astrology. So it's possible that some of the Magi did astronomy, but not astrology. And others of Magi did both. They were still into the sorcery. They were still into the occultic practices. We don't know. But it's very possible that some of the Magi, or maybe all of them that came uh, to Jerusalem, were already followers of God and perhaps had been for generations, all because God had planted Daniel there hundreds of years earlier. Now, if they were, it's also possible that they were following the prophetic 70 weeks of Daniel that Daniel gives upon the captives returning to Jerusalem, rebuilding Jerusalem, and we still are waiting for that 70th week of Daniel, which is the seven-year tribulation, because the 70 weeks refer to seven periods of 70 periods of seven. But if you follow that timeline, it takes you all the way to the time of Christ, and you can actually chart it out, and it's very possible that these men were charting the timeline and said, oh, whoa, 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 we're in the window of when this Messiah should come. And if we're in the window of when this Messiah should come, what if God announces it because there were scriptures in the Old Testament talked about he would speak through the heavens or he'd speak in the stars, and so they, they believed it. It's possible that if that timeline, if we're looking at this right, there could be... The Messiah could be coming, this king, this ruler could be coming around that time. Additional to this, there was a sense of anticipation. Did you know, at that time in the ancient world, there was a sense of anticipation that a world leader was coming. 
Kind of gives you a weird feeling about today, doesn't it? There was a sense at that time that a world leader was coming, and the Magi, who were at the height of looking into these kind of things, were trying to figure out who this leader would be. William Barclay, in his um, commentary, listen to what he writes, and he quotes a couple of ancient historians. He says, It may seem to us extraordinary that these men should set out from the east to find a king. But the strange thing is that just about the time that Jesus was born, there was in that world a strange feeling of expectation of the coming of a king. Even the Roman historians knew about this. Not so very much later than this, uh, Seatonus could write, there had spread over all the Orient, and the Orient was the, the Middle East to the, to the Near East, uh, over all the Orient, an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to the men coming from Judea to rule the world. Even the Romans were thought, thinking about that, that they believed that someone was coming from Judea who would rule the world. Uh, in the life of Vespasian, um, it says, Tacticus tells us that the same belief, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire the universal empire. Uh, Tacticus also writes, the Jews had the belief that about that time one from their own country should become governor and, uh, of, the habit- uh, of the habitable earth. Joseph in his Wars of the Jews writes, At a slightly later time, we find that Tyrodotes, um, king of Armenia, visiting Nero with his Magi along with him, we find that the Magi in Athens were sacrificing to the memory of Plato. Uh, almost at the same time as Jesus was born, we find Augustus, the Roman emperor, being hailed as the savior of the world, and Virgil, the Roman poet, writing about his fourth eclogue, which is known as the Messianic eclogue, about the golden days to come. So whether it was Josephus or whether it's Tacticus or these different historians, they're telling us at that time the world was anticipating not only a world leader, but they, the consensus with this leader was, was going to come out of the area of Jerusalem known as Judea. Interesting. That God was kind of speaking. Do you know that God will actually speak through the world? Now, the world is not speaking Scripture, but God will use... Remember just before Jesus was put on the cross... Caiaphas, who hated Jesus, remember, Caiaphas was the high priest, he hated Jesus, he said, it is expedient for all of Israel that one man should die for the sins of the nation. Now, Caiaphas hated Jesus, and the Bible tells us that when Caiaphas spoke that, that God put that prophecy in his mouth. Even though he himself hated Jesus and wanted to crucify Jesus, he prophesied and didn't know it. By the way, sometimes world leaders will prophesy and don't even know it. Right When they say, someday there will be a man that will bring real peace, that is a true statement. It won't be who they think it will be, but there really will be a man who will bring world peace. Right? We know who he is. He's called the Prince of Peace. So these things, uh, all throughout the world, they were expecting a Messiah. The Magi from the east, they were watching and they were looking for signs uh, from the heavens. And once they saw a light like no other light, they made seeing and finding the source of this light their number one priority. Everything else kind of fell off. Their normal routines, this was their priority. We don't know if they had used the teaching of the writings of Daniel or not. We don't know that, whether they used that to calculate the coming of Messiah. 
uh, or it's when they saw that star, everything changed. But there was some divine revelation through the star, something else that God may have given that's not recorded, we don't know. But it seems that searching and watching with earnest when the star appeared made them forget about anything else. This was all they were focused on. Remember that later when Jesus in his earthly ministry in Mark chapter 4 and Matthew chapter uh, 1, Peter and Andrew do what? They drop their nets to follow Jesus. All of a sudden, all that was important to them, that's the one. Everything else became second place. See, the wise men, they changed the focus of their life. They changed the plan of their life to personally go and see and worship the king that they were convinced was like no other king. They were convinced of it. Some people might have talked about it, but they were convinced about it. Christian, are you convinced Jesus is your king? Or can you just say it intellectually? Would God be able to say, yeah, I've measured your life, and it looks like I'm your king? Big question, isn't it? For all of us to answer. And so they traveled over rugged terrain, demanding conditions in very dangerous areas as well. This was a four- to five-month journey, one way just to get to Jerusalem. Four to five months to get there. To find this newborn king. Church, what are we willing to do to go to Jesus? What are we willing to do? What routines in your life would you give up? Sacrifice would you make? Maybe God wants you to go, we're going to be going to Guatemala and El Salvador in 2017. Maybe God wants you to go there. By the way, it won't take you four to five months to get there anymore. We can get there in a couple hours. We're only there a week. But it may say, well, I don't, I'm not spending $1,000 to go on that thing. I want a new flat screen. You won't take the flat screen to heaven, but you'll take the souls that get saved to heaven. You will not take the flat screen. Your grandkids will be using it someday. Or not even, right? All those things. Um, maybe, he wants you to, maybe he wants you to serve in children's ministry without there being a waiting list. You can help make the waiting list. You can help create the waiting list. Maybe he wants you to do that. Say, God's, God's not saying, I want you to travel four and a half months on a camel, then four and a half months back. I just want you to go serve these little ones that I love. Maybe it's something... He's wanting you to give up. If there's something along those lines, something you've been dying for to buy, and God says, I, don't want, you to, I want you to invest that in the gospel. I don't know. It, it's for each person that you've got to pray about. Say, Lord, what is it? And sometimes you don't have to pray. God's been telling you forever. You've been avoiding praying about it. You know exactly what it is. God doesn't even have to say, you don't pray about that. I've told you a hundred times in a hundred ways. Remember that sign you wrote by? Remember that verse you opened up? I've made this crystal clear. You're avoiding it. But they, not the wise men. They didn't avoid it and say, well, we, don't, we shouldn't go. Somebody else will go find him. Let, some other, let the wise men in Egypt go find him. Let the wise men from Athens go find him. No, they said, God's speaking to us. Christian, Jesus' return is just as imminent now as it was 2,000 years ago the first time. His second coming is just as imminent now. The world is looking for a leader right now. Right now. The world's looking for a man that can solve all the problems. And we know who he is. He's seated, he's seated on his throne in heaven. And his return is just as close now as it was then. And you may very well believe, Christian, hear me clearly on this. You may very well believe that the world needs Jesus. 
You may really believe that, 100%. You may say, I, I believe that the world needs Jesus. But are you truly desiring that he would return? Or are you just saying, not just yet. I've got a lot of stuff I still want to do. Important stuff. Now, if you're saying, I want to delay because I want to see more people get saved, that's a different story. Are you watching, looking for his return? Does your life, does your prayer life, do the priorities of your life reflect that you are like the wise men looking for him? Or not? 2 Peter 3.12 said, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. How do we hasten the day of the Lord? We get the gospel to the four corners of the earth. And this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, and the Bible says, and then the end shall come. We have work to do. We've got to get out there like... The uh, wise men did. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, speaking of the crown of righteousness, he expected to receive and said not only him, but he said, All those who love his appearing. Do you love that Jesus will be appearing? They had expectant hearts. Let's take a look at the next thing here. How was the response of Herod uh, when they said, Hey, we've come here. And we are looking for the most amazing birth in the history of the world. Um, well, notice their response. One second here. Their response, the ancient Greeks, they had a fascination. They had a fascination with uh, the Magi, by the way. And at this time, the Roman Empire, the Magi, uh, they could be found in the great western cities of Athens or Rome. Roman rulers, they often consulted the Magi for decisions. But these Magi, they traveled a great distance to find the king of the Jews, and they state when they come into Jerusalem, they they don't say, we think he's been born. They state emphatically, he has been born. So God has revealed this to them, or their faith was 100%. I don't know which it was, and you don't either. But they state emphatically that he had been born, that this king has already been born. Is it possible that the king of Israel, that the offspring of David, that the anointed of God that had been promised had been born and no one in Jerusalem knew about it? Is it possible well, we know it's possible because this is exactly what was the case. Their ignorance of what had taken place aside, this should have caused Jerusalem to erupt into a celebration and rejoicing. It should have caused that. Or at least a level of excitement that this just might be true and everyone uh, instead, what is their response? When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. It was not excitement. It was not let let off the fireworks. It was not, yes, God sent the ruler. This was not the response. Not everyone hears good news as good news. Would you agree with that? Many times you witness to somebody and you thought, they're going to love to hear this. They're going to love that God's changed my life and that my sins are forgiven. No, they don't care. Not at first. The Holy Spirit can start to work. But a lot of times, good news is not received as good news. And if the good news is actually the best of all, the news that God has come down to redeem mankind, many 
are anything but happy about hearing it. The wise men, they follow the star from their home. They follow it from their home all the way to the land of Judah, and they stop here in Jerusalem. Now, whether they visited the temple or not, we don't know, but they do make it to the throne of Herod. And assuming, they assume he, too, would have been following this and would have been looking forward to this royal birth. But Herod wasn't watching for the Messiah, was he? Not at that time. He, he starts watching for the Messiah, but he was not watching for the Messiah. Now, he was building his personal kingdom and power. The priests and the religious leaders, well, they actually, when Herod calls them all together, they know the Scripture. Hey, where is he supposed to be born? He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Does anyone know the timeline? Well, we should be watching it. The Magi are watching it. They know the Scriptures, but the religious leaders, although they knew the prophetic Scriptures, they, for the most part, weren't watching for God to send the Messiah. Instead, they wanted to approve and help choose the leader. Remember when Jesus comes along? In his ministry, they would test him and test him and test him. They, were, they felt they, they would decide who would be the leader, if, whether they'd accept him or not. So the response to the wise men is not rejoicing, but it's troubled minds. Herod was troubled. The religious leaders were troubled. And all this ill feeling then ripples throughout the city. Turn with me real quick. Take a left-hand turn to the book of Micah. Because this is what's quoted here in, in uh, verse 6. Uh, you only have to go a couple of chapters to the left. You'll hit Zechariah and Haggai and Zephaniah and Nahum, Habakkuk. But you have Micah's right after the book of Jonah. Turn to chapter 5, where you see the rest of, um, the rest of this prophecy. Now, the prophecy that's quoted is in chap- uh, chapter 5, verse 2. But look at, verse, uh, look at verses 4 and 5. This is the rest of what was promised in this prophecy. Micah chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. What a message about Jesus. He'll feed the flock. Everyone will abide. They'll not be uh, burned up uh, and fall away. In the majesty of the name of the Lord, that God will be there. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. And it mentions peace. He shall be peace. Jesus is the only solution for peace for this world. The only solution. Why are they troubled? And would, what would make them not want to see the rest of this prophecy fulfilled? Well, you have to ask yourself the same question today. Why would the world not want to see terrorism go away, murders go away? Why would the world not want to see God pour out his grace, love, and favor? Well, the Bible says men love darkness rather than light. Because the human heart by nature doesn't want God's kingdom to come and doesn't want God's will to be done. You and I are the same way, by the way. Don't look. It's not, it's not all fingers out there. There's a lot of fingers pointed back at us. Many times we in this room don't want God's kingdom come, and we don't want his will done in our life either. True? 
They reject real peace for what they think is going to bring them happiness. What they think is going to bring them happiness. They don't think that God knows what he's doing. A lot of times we don't either, right? Many Christians refuse to fully follow and serve Christ because they, they just don't really believe that Jesus has the ability that they do to craft peace, comfort, and the perfect life for themselves. That's the reality, even in the church. People want God to approve their will and their kingdom and their plan. I've said it before. People actually want to write a little manifesto, hand it up and God say, sign off on this. This is what I want to do in the next 10 years. This is where I want to retire. This is how much money I want to make. This is how many grandkids I want. This is blah, 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 blah. And God's, God hands it back and says, you haven't read my plan yet. That's, we're all guilty in various levels. and God wants to strip that out of our life. Jesus had come into the world to save people from their sins. Herod and the religious leaders, they wanted God to further enhance their life and condone their behavior. They didn't, they didn't want salvation from sin. They wanted God to make them comfortable there. Israel returned to power, that's great, as long as they were in charge. Not much has changed 2,000 years later. As many people want a religious experience that uses the Bible, remember, I'm saying a religious experience that actually uses the Bible. The Bible will be employed in this religious experience. As long as the words surrender, repentance, commitment, and dying to self are left out of the equation. None of which would have got the wise men all the way to Jerusalem. Amen? In other words, Christianity that's centered on ourselves with a Jesus of our own making and our own imagination, not of the Bible biblical description. He's not the Savior, he's not the shepherd, he's not the ruler of our hearts. That's what many people want. I remember talking to a man who says, you know, when I go to church, he didn't know I was a pastor. I think he did know I was a pastor. I think he forgot for a moment. But anyway, he said, I go to church, I just want to leave feeling good. That's up to God. You preach the word, and some people are going to feel great, and some are going to, God's going to say, I want you to feel a little ill because I'm trying to get your attention. Right? We see Herod's deceptive response to all this. He says, I'll worship too. Bring him back to me. Now, you know he's not going to worship him, right? He's going to execute him if he gets his chance. Herod's deceptive response, boy, it's like the arrogance of so many rulers, isn't it? They really believe they can outsmart God. Don't you love when you see world leaders think they can outsmart God like This has been tried thousands of times, and all of you end up in the history books, right? You can't outsmart God. You can't thwart his plans. Uh, He's gotten the Magi this far. I'm pretty sure he'll complete the mission. What do you think? Of course he does. They want to eliminate God's plan. The wise men move out. The star goes before them, and they stop six miles south of Jerusalem, and then we see what takes place next. It's joyful worship. Notice the response of the wise men. It says, um, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they come in the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother. They fell down and worshipped him. The response, so different than when they went to Jerusalem. When they get to Bethlehem, they don't ask any questions. The star stopped. They knew this was the spot. They don't ask any questions. They don't ask anybody, hey, have you seen where the king? They knew where it was. They go straight in 
and there's just an unbridled response of exceedingly great joy and worship. Christian, until we drop everything and truly come to worship, we will never have joy. Do you know that? Until we drop everything else and just worship God, we will never have joy. You can say, well, I bet you if I got everything for Christmas I wanted, I'd have joy. No, you wouldn't. New stuff is old stuff very fast, isn't it? This is how Apple makes a living. Right? Capitalism is good for economies, but not great for human souls sometimes. And, I, and I'm not against capitalism. I believe it's, it's the better systems of all the other. I, it's way better than communism. But all the isms aren't what the soul needs. The soul needs to worship God. Nothing else will ever satisfy us like worship. It's what we were created to do. Do you realize this? We were created to worship. When you don't worship, you're just like, I will not raise my, I will not lift my hands. Someone's going to look at me. You're resisting God's, what he's created you to do, is to worship. It's why everyone worships something. But the wise men, they wanted to come and worship Emmanuel. They wanted to come and worship the God who sent him. I love what Jesus said in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the uh, woman at the well. He says, but the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and the Father is seeking such to worship him. He's always been seeking for wise men and women that will come and worship him, hasn't he? Now, the Spirit hadn't been given yet when Jesus said this to this woman, uh, and it hadn't been given uh, to the Old Testament saints prior, but these wise men, they indeed were true worshipers. The authenticity of our worship is based on what? It's based on who we worship, why we worship, and how we worship, and the purity or the biblical framework of our worship. And Jesus, when he made that statement in John 4.23, he was speaking to a woman. She was still at that time unsure who Jesus was. But these men, they knew exactly who Jesus was, didn't they? They weren't unsure. They knew this was the Son of God. So much so that they wouldn't rest until they found the Son of God, the King of Kings. And notice that immediate response. Exceedingly great joy. Remember the angel's proclamation to the shepherds? I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Then the host joins in and says, glory to God in the highest, which is what? Worship and peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Notice that the worship and the joy are all together. They were together from the angels. They were together with the wise men. They were together with the shepherds. But you have to go to him. The shepherds had to go to him. The magi had to go to him. You and I have to go to him. He's already come to us. Bowing down at his feet and giving up the reins of your life and my life and our lives in worship to him is the place of our joy. It's the place of our peace. It's the place of our rest. It's not the rest if you've got all the money in the world. The, what, the Magi were giving their money away at this point. You see it? They're actually giving it up. Jesus said, I've come that you might have joy, that, you might, that your joy might be full. 
But even in church, many people don't believe that. They don't believe what Jesus said. They don't they think he's... I, I've heard him say it. I know the verse. I do not believe it. Because many in the church believe that the American dream and success is the source of joy. And that's why Christmas will sell thousands and thousands and millions of dollars. Because people believe that that's the source of joy. Christian, listen to this word from C.S. Lewis. He said, I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. All pleasures substitutes for joy. Does the presence of Christ bring you joy? If it doesn't, you're still in Jerusalem and not in Bethlehem. You're still back there in Jerusalem. You, you, you didn't go on with the wise men, the camels. Notice the wise men's entrance into the house. And by the way, it's not a stable because they were now in a house. This is somewhere between six months to two years after the birth, but we don't know exactly. Uh, but they fall down and worship Jesus. They fall down at his feet. Have you ever worshiped like that? They hold nothing back. They fall down at his feet. They don't even care if Mary and Joseph, look at these guys worshiping. They've lost their minds. They fall at his feet and worship him. I've seen men at games that worship. They get their worship on. I've seen men at football games that tell me they don't know how to worship, and I've seen them worship. They worship ten times more than they can at the feet of God. I see, you know, you watch these shows like The Voice and stuff, which I don't, but I've, uh, my daughter's like singing stuff. I, I've come in, and you see the judges stand up, tears running down their face because someone sang a song. And there's, you know, and there's a woman's like this, she's like, I've never been so touched by this in my life. Have you never met God? Right? People are created to worship. And if they don't worship God, they're going to worship something. You'll see it. 2017, start observing people worship. You'll see them worshiping. They just, they're not going to be worshiping God in most cases. Now, why is there, uh, why is there the, um, no concern on the wise men's part when they fall down and worship? Why do they not even care? Because they know who they're worshiping. They know he's actually worthy. And their worship, it truly involves their time, their talent, and their treasure. Wouldn't you agree? At least 10 months out of their life, gone. Had to give away a bunch of money to God, gone. Had to use their talents to study which God actually revealed it to them. Time, talent, treasure. Christian, you will never go any further unless you say it all belongs to God. My time, my talent, and my treasure. They actually knew it don't belong to them. You realize that frankincense can't possibly belong to a person. It comes from tree sap. Who owns the trees? God does. Anytime he wants to have the trees gone, there's no more frankincense. The gold, where does it come from? The ground, right? Each of these elements, God owns them. Your next breath belongs to God. Isn't that amazing to consider? And where do we get the arrogance to tell God we have more important things to do than worship you with our life? But that's what we do. But they didn't do this. They, they, they kneeled and they, they gave freely and sacrificially because their worship was focused all on Jesus. It made the travel, it made the loss of time, it made the loss of possessions worth it to see their Savior. And by the way, they were just practicing for heaven. Because when you get to heaven, 
you're going to bow down at the feet of Jesus and you're going to cast your crowns back towards him. You're not going to say, I want to keep this portion. You'll know then that none of it ever really mattered. It was all the attitude of the heart. It was always the attitude of the heart. That will bow down, and those that bow down now and present their time, their talent, and treasure to the Lord now will be richly, richly rewarded now and in the future, but not necessarily that you're going to get rich. You'll have joy. You'll have peace. Things that the world can't buy. I want to come to a close with this last verse here. We're out of time, but I, this last one. By the way, uh, real quick, the gold is because he was the king. The frankincense is because of his priestly, high priestly service that he's now the high priest, the confession of our faith. And the myrrh, because he is the sacrifice. The myrrh was anointing for the burial. And so we see each of these elements. And I believe that it was not just three gifts. I believe there was a lot more than that. And this allowed the family, when they escaped to Egypt, God gave them provision to get to Egypt. By the way, whatever you need, trust God. He'll give you the provision when you need it. But if you try and hold on to it, he just might take it from you. It's better to give it willingly, isn't it? You'll feel a lot better freely giving to God. And God says, all right, that's become your God. I'm taking it away. Christian, if he loves you, whom the Lord loves, he what? Chastens. So let's be wise and say, Lord, it all belongs to you. My next breath belongs to you. I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to come forward. I'm going to come forward. I'm not going to wait for a revival. I'm going to be a revival. They freely gave these things. Christian, this last verse, though. Herod told him to come back to him. God says, don't go back to that dude. And being divinely warned, in a dream, they departed. They did not return to Herod. They departed for their own country. And God says, here, go this way. Go another way. They probably even saved time. God probably told them, let me show you a route that y'all have never figured out before. I actually made this world. You're going to save time. And you're going to avoid Herod. And I'm going to preserve my son in the process. Christian, the key to more revelation from God, they get additional revelation at the end here. The key to more revelation from God in your life and in my life more of his divine spirit and guiding our life, more of his safety, more of his provision, more of his wisdom in your life and in my life, is responding to the revelation he's already given. That makes sense? The key to more revelation, more protection, more of the work of the spirit is respond to what he's already given. If we don't respond to that, we're at a stalemate. We're at an impasse. Jesus said to he who has, more will be given. True? More will be given. If you love people already, God will help you even love people more than you already do. If you're already a generous person, you'll become a more generous person. If you're already a giving person, you'll become more giving. If you're a forgiving person, you'll become more forgiving. If you're a willing person, you'll become more willing. Well, some might say, but I don't hear God speaking to me. My Christian life has become dry. My hobbies and interests are far more interesting to me than the Bible is, or prayer, or church, or serving I feel like I'm aimlessly walking in circles. Different people in this room could relate to some of these things, right? Many Christians, they've stopped going to Bethlehem. They've stayed in Jerusalem. They've stayed there. They're still in Jerusalem, and they're troubled that Jesus is going to alter their life. He is going to alter our life, by the way, but for the good. That's where you have to have trust and believe. 
They're close to the temple, which is a form of religion and a formal practice of religion, but they're nowhere close to worship. Right? The chief priests and all of them, they were up near the temple, but they weren't worshiping. The wise men are down in little old Bethlehem, and they're actually worshiping. Will we believe God? Will we go to Jesus? I want to close with two passages. You don't have to turn there. We don't have time, but I want to read them to you. You know them. Early in my Christian life, these were two of the first passages that became um, guiding verses in my life. And you know them both, but I just want to close with them. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. The wise men did this. He directed their path. They put their total trust in God. And then many, many years later, the book of Jude is written. And there's these verses in chapter, uh, there's only one chapter, but Jude, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Someone knew it. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. Those two passages are either true or they're not. You will either find joy worshiping God and following Him and Him directing the paths of your life, or we can create our own paths, resist His path, and get a lot of stuff and accomplish a lot of things, and get a lot of pats on the back from the world and say, your life is amazing. And even a lot of Facebook likes in the process. And not get one from God. But not have joy and not have peace. It's only peace we find our King. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just bow before you now. We don't want to just worship you. As you said, Jesus, these people worship me with their lips but their heart is far from me. Lord, even in this room, forgive us if that has been us. If we're worshiping with you our lips, but not with our hearts. And Lord, collectively, we want to surrender all. We want to follow you, Jesus, and your plan. Not only to Bethlehem, but the journey that comes after Bethlehem and all the way to heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen. After the service, we'll have some folks over in the corner. If you say, hey, I, I don't even know Jesus is my Lord and Savior.